everybody welcome back to the blind chatter podcast uh larry how are you pretty good buddy how are you good man i missed you i haven't seen you for a while no you haven't it's been it's, it's been a while almost like yeah. a like a stain song or creed or whoever sings that that was uh that was stain was it stained mm-hmm. well it's yeah. been a while um how was your hunting over the holidays well, I didn't have much. Like on our last podcast, you know, had the Rona and that kind of fun stuff. And uh, I think I ended up going out the day after Christmas, and that was uh, <clears throat> that snowy day, and um, wasn't much activity, or a lot of snow, and yeah. uh, not a lot of birds flying. At least when I was out, and I didn't have a lot of high energy, so yeah. I was just kind of chilling in the duck blind. Uh, then I think. Uh, last Thursday shoot yeah so actually that was the day after Christmas and then last Thursday so right before New Year's went out and shot some little geese did pretty good on that Uh, got a bonus mallard and um, then hunted this last weekend and I don't know shot 20-25 birds and you know nothing spectacular but uh, I I will say that the birds that were around uh, wanted to play. So that was always a little kick in the uh, confidence category as we had those stale birds there for a while and I was starting to get kind of pissy. So I think everybody kind of is in that same boat, you know? Yeah. So, um, you know, shoot, it was, it was frustrating, you know, going out and seeing, you know, a thousand birds or whatever, and just not, everything was just so stale and I think it'd been around and we got that cold snap and I think it pushed some birds out and some new birds came in and and um uh we got a lot of water right now though so oh my god yeah it's um, like we're it's just like it's like James is saying you know like after that first big not the first big rainstorm but when the river came up initially like what was that like a month ago probably or so mm-hmm. um he said okay we'll get ready for the for the yo-yo effect and i was like the yo-yo effect yeah what the hell is that he goes well he goes when the river comes up and then it's nice for a few days and it drops back down well after it gets nice for a few days everything kind of melts snow melt you know fill the river up and it comes right back up so it goes up and it goes down and it goes up and it goes down yeah we're like right in the middle of it right now we are harrisburg has uh i think it's supposed to crest tomorrow uh about a foot and a half to two foot below flood stage uh i think it's a flood stage is like 14 foot and i think it's supposed to get up to 12 12 and a half and then Corvallis is supposed to uh crest friday obviously a lot of water coming out of the marys going Mm -hmm. into that so uh, Corvallis is supposed to crest friday midday and then i think we're looking at sunshine this weekend and kind of warm like 45 so yeah but it's supposed to be cool like the mornings are supposed to be cool Fair enough. You know, yeah. like Friday night, I think it's supposed to get down to like not cool, but like 37. And then yeah. um Saturday night, I think it drops down to like 30. Um, and then Sunday night, Saturday, Sunday, with it being clear, it's gonna be yeah. a little bit cooler. 
Yeah, 30 Saturday morning and 32 Sunday. Yeah, which I'm perfect. I can, that's good for me. Yeah, just give me a little bit of wind. Yeah, you know, we hunted, um, I hunted New Year's Day, and I will tell you that was probably one of the most calm mornings that like I have ever seen. Like we shot Mm -hmm. a duck and it got kind of pillowcased, and there was a feather. That was floating around and it floated around for like, I swear to God, like five or six minutes. I made James almost piss his pants laughing because I saw the feather at one point. And then like a couple minutes later, I saw it again. And I was like, oh my God, look, another feather. And I, like, I may he have was heard on this his, story. Dude, he was on his knees story. and he yeah. was grabbing for air. And like, I'm like standing there, like hung over. Like, I don't know what was so funny about this, yeah. but you know, I mean, there was no wind. And it was just sunny and <clears throat> it was just a weird morning. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, it was. You guys did all right that day, too. Yeah, we shot. Um, I think we shot two, man. Yeah, I, I obviously was a mile away or whatever. I think we ended up with nine or ten. Yeah. So. No, it was, I mean, for it being how, it, for the weather being how it was and the birds, you know, we hunted a different blind um, the day prior he hunted um what he calls his his big blind you know mm-hmm. um we hunted a different blind because all the birds were working that blind the day before well saturday morning all the birds are working the big blind and yeah. it was just weird you know we had a group of probably 20 widgeon come in mm-hmm. and they made like two passes and they went and landed in front of the other blind <laughs> like you know almost like textbook um, like like before you got married, like most of the women prior in your life did, do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty much. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's okay. I'm I'm funny. I may not be yeah. cute, but I'm funny. It's uh, about personality, man. Yeah, I mean, I you know can't yeah. fuck my personality, but there's not right. a lot of people in the world that want to fuck me either. So right, I'm with you. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was uh you know we had a couple big groups of mallards come in that um, I'm pretty sure were we're fresh birds. Um, you know, they were super, super reactive. I mean, they came over the top at, uh, probably, I don't know, hundred yards. And I mean, you could hear them just chattering, just like mm-hmm. clear as day. And I was like, Oh, like I got goosebumps. And I was like, this is going to be, this is going to be one of those, those decoying sets where they mm-hmm. do it like yeah. perfect. And they left. Yeah. I don't know where they went. You know, it, they made a few passes. They played with us for a couple minutes and then they left. Yeah. I had a couple of those Saturday morning too. Um, yeah. my, my best luck was on, obviously on smaller groups, just no wind and, you yeah. know, all the motion that was happening on the pond was coming from jerk strings and stuff like that. And, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I don't know. Friday. Now Friday was kind of a, I don't want to say it was a bad day. It was just kind of different. Um, we didn't see a lot of, we saw a few ducks in the morning, but we never really got presented opportunities at them mm-hmm. um but we had a hawker come in like i don't know 15 minutes after goose light and it worked perfect at the pothole and like they mm-hmm. don't you're you know the pothole really well mm-hmm. and geese don't really mm-hmm. they don't really jive with it you know it's really kind of a I tight hate, quarters no goose loves to land in the 1875 bathtub no right Except for this one. Except I don't for know. This one. And like all my goosey coins, like 
I didn't fix them before the water came up. So like the ones that were on stakes are still on stakes, but I have like a turtle decoy right now where the only thing showing is like the, where you see the screw at that holds the actual, like where the stake goes in at. Yeah. It's just like the, the back of a turtle sitting there. And then like the other ones like on its side, like full of water, like it's drunk, you know, Mm -hmm. um, dude, this thing worked like perfect, made like five passes, great, big, huge goose. I think it weighed in. One of them that we ended up shooting weighed in at 13.8 pounds. All right. Huge goose. Um, but anyways, you know, this one came in and made a couple passes and it made one pass where we should have shot it. And I was like, damn it. Like, it's not like that. That was it, you know, and with everybody kind of shooting around us, you know, I was super worried and I let it get out a little ways. I hit it really hard on a corner and I saw the back of its wings. And I told Declan, I go, as soon as this bird comes in, I go, you're on it because I have a 20 gauge. So I'm, this isn't my, I'm folding. This isn't my hand to play. Right. Came right in front of the blind about 30, 35 yards passing by. And I told him to shoot it. He pulled up and he like hesitated or he, maybe I just beat him to it, but I pulled up too. And I folded it with a 20 gauge, three inch number four, <laughs> just pillowcase it. Um, you know, so we got that one to start off with. And then uh, probably about an hour later we had, we had another group of five come in, um, great big birds again, you know, probably about the same 13, 12, 13, maybe 14 pound birds are the biggest. Um, mm-hmm. and they made like three passes and they were, they back, they were back winging on the corner of the blind and they kind of picked up a little bit. And so I called the shot and we stood up and shot through the willow tree. And my very first shot, 20 gauge, three inch number four again, just folded it. Like I, you know, don't, I don't understand it all the time, but ended up folding that one. And uh, Declan ended up getting two out of that group. So we both had two, uh, two nice big honkers. And then uh, we had a pair of spoonies come in and, you know, of course we had to lay waste to the spoonies. Uh, So we got our spoons in for the day. Um, Well, Spooner McGee. Oh dude. It's like, I need to get some shirts made that are like, you do, you know, yeah. the master of spoons like i mean matt spoon, judy's the spoon fed <laughs> matt judy's the widget master and i'm the spoon master i mean you get us on a hunt together and i mean you never know what you're gonna get <laughs> but so you know it was good you know i figured i got to hunt quite a bit um the week before and then um you know i i hunted a fair amount last week not too much great success but more or less just getting out and being out there yeah, but, that's what's important. So can't yeah. shoot them from the couch. Nope. Not since they don't make a good duck hunter game anymore. Nope. If I still have my bird hunter wild wings edition from 2004, 2004, 2005, I used to just sit in my room and I'd play bird hunter all summer long at night. I'd even Nothing shoot spoons. I'd even shoot spoons in that game. Oh my goodness. I know. I know. Still. Still have not shot even a slightly, slightly mature Drake spoonbill this year. I, I shot one. And I have shot, I don't want to hear it, first of all. I didn't ask mm-hmm. you. This is my mm-hmm. question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've shot more spoonies this year than I've shot like the last, God, I'd, I'd say like the last like five years combined. Uh, the last couple of years I've shot more than I probably had in the prior. Yeah. 
I mean, this will be a question. This will be a question for the guy coming on this episode, which I guess this is a good transition into that. Um, You know, today we're going to be joined by a waterfowl biologist, somebody who can answer the many questions of the Blind Chatter podcast. His name is Kelly Warren. Um, I think he's from around here. Mm -hmm. I think he's from the Corvallis area. Um, He now works with Ducks Unlimited. Um, He does a lot of out of state um dark goose dark canada goose research up in uh cordova alaska where they do the majority of the banding and collaring the duskies that's where um, they're breed at yeah or the the copper yeah the copper river yeah. delta i think um well we can ask him well we can ask him you know so but i guess we'll go ahead and transition into that so um Thank you guys for listening, and uh, we hope you enjoy. All right, Kelly, welcome to the podcast. Um, why don't you go ahead and do a little uh, introduction of yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Tanner. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Kelly Warren. I live uh, just outside of Philomath. I am the Western Regional Biologist for Ducks Unlimited. Uh, I also have a hobby waterfowl photography business, uh, and I grew up in the Willamette Valley Uh passionate waterfowler. Uh, also have been fortunate enough to have a family piece of property that we manage for waterfowl. Uh, it's been in the family since 1964. And so pretty much my life has been all ducks all the time and feel very fortunate to uh, have the opportunity to do what I do and learn about the birds that I'm, I'm passionate about both as a occupation as well as a hobby. What started your, uh, your photography thing that did that start like from a young age you always enjoyed it or is it something that you got into the off season and you couldn't get enough of them you know that's a great question um my grandfather actually got cancer in 2005 and he actually gave me money and said you have a really good eye for uh wild things and he gave me the money to buy my first dlsr camera and lens and that started it for me and over and so that was when I was 20 I'm now 36 so I just kind of grew and grew and grew ever since uh he started that initial investment yeah well you take great pictures yeah that's awesome thank you very much I I actually bought one at uh the DU bank the last DU bank where we had I I really really wanted it and I told my wife I go Listen, here's the deal. Um, we weren't married at that point. So you had leverage. But, a little no, but I didn't because we had the same bank account. <laughs> and she knew no. that she could see where all this money came from. And I was like, hey, uh, this picture, I go, it's going home with us. And she's like, well, what's it at? And I'm like, I don't know. It's a silent auction. I don't know. And so I walked over like, I think the silent auction was going to end in like 10 minutes. And so I went above mine one more. And then somebody came in and bid me again. And so I hung out in front of it until the ticket girls came by to collect the silent auction. And I wrote my number in because I wanted it so bad, but it was that picture of, uh, it was like a group of, a group of cacklers. And there was, a uh, the yellow net collar, like right dead center of it, but hangs in my, hangs in my bedroom. And every time I walk by it, I remember, Hey, I actually want something from a D banquet. Yeah, there you go. No. But yeah, I mean, you take, uh, you take some really, some really good photos. Um, you know, that's one thing that I've started doing 
a little bit more is I've gotten more into like the capturing the moment and capturing kind of what's going on with the birds and how they act. Um, but nowhere near the quality that, you know, you obviously have probably a lens that's worth more than my pickup. Um, considering my pickups worth like two grand. Um, but you know, I'm shooting on a, like a little small rebel, uh, T seven. And then I have a Sony a 55. Um, but it's a, it's incredibly amazing. It's amazing how incredibly addictive the photography is of waterfowl when you're a waterfowl hunter. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that. And I started out with a rebel as well. Um, and interestingly enough, you know, you can go to just about any refuge today and see people with those 10,000, 15,000, $25,000 lenses. My lens is only 1500 bucks, man. Um, wow. it's, it's just a matter of knowing your equipment and being patient, just like in waterfowl hunting. Yeah. And being in the right place at the right time. Uh, like waterfowl hunting. <laughs> yes, very much so. So a lot of the same principles carry over. Uh, but like you said, Tanner, it extends into when hunting is bad, aka this year the camera got a little more lens time than it normally gets uh, during yeah. November. Um, and then it carries on all the way through in April, uh, you know, when you got a lot of different migrants and different birds coming through than we have here right now. Yeah, that's one thing I've actually been looking forward to this year more is that the migration back up when all those birds come back into the refuge and the refuges are full and you've got all those, you know, my favorite personally spoonies that are just gorgeous (laughs) since I can't since I can't shoot one that's, you know, like I have one on my wall, but like, I don't know what happened. I don't know if my couch fell on it or like if it just decided to like fall out of the trailer on the way. But like when we moved, I had a spoonie that got like, it looked like somebody hit it with a baseball bat. So I need a new one. And I mean, I can't shoot a Drake to save my life right now. Well, right now is prime time, Tanner. You got a limited number of of days left in the season. So you better make it happen. I know just talking about it's making my palms sweaty. (laughs) So you're from, you're from around here. Are you, did you grow up in Corvallis? Did you grow up? So I grew up in, uh, I grew up in Flomith. Actually, the first eight years of my life, I was in um, Alaska. My family has a pretty big fish and wildlife background. My grandfather was a professor at Oregon State. My dad's in fisheries. Um, uh, I kind of decided to go to the wildlife side and just the different jobs over time. You know, waterfowl obviously was a very early passion and I tried to carry that on through um and was successful in some ways and not in others you know I did have jobs that were not waterfowl centric before um being getting on with DU but it broadened my scope of uh fish and wildlife and restoration and that type of stuff which definitely equates to the work that I'm doing now um and helping in waterfowl as well as other species in the region did you go to Oregon State I did not. I went to uh, Linfield College and then Portland State. Oh, nice. Well, they're still yeah. local. I mean, yeah, still local. Yep. Yeah. What made you choose uh, the biology, the waterfowl biology side? Uh, just like you, uh, I'm addicted to waterfowl. It was something, you know, like during the summer, worked at the club to get mm-hmm. 
waterfowl season, spent a lot of time in the off season looking at birds, going after refuges. Uh, just one of those early passion things. Um, you know, I grew up also in a community. Um, as you guys both know, as you're a part of it, there's a pretty tight knit hunting community around where I grew up. And, you know, having that uh, companionship and uh, that companionship and uniting of waterfowl hunters is pretty cool to have. And uh, a lot of great hunts, a lot of great memories in the field with, with guys in the area. Hmm. Man, I wish I could have been a waterfowl biologist. I was I just not I'm not smart enough for that, man. I think I landed right in my wheelhouse. Like a heavy equipment operator. I think it's perfect. It's just it suits me well. Tanner, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're in the perfect, perfect place to be. I don't think my boss does. <laughs> <laughs> I think he gets tired of trying to talk to me right now when I'm like standing there and I'm like looking up and he's like, hey. I'm like are you talking to me? He's like, yeah, what are you doing? I'm like, there's a bunch of honkers flying over right here. I'm trying to see where they're going so I can mark it on Onyx and go find them after work. We all seem to have that problem. Yeah. Yeah. And now you work for Ducks Unlimited and you're the Oregon, you're the Western Oregon regional biologist. Correct. So let's put that into heavy equipment operator terms. What exactly do you do for them? <laughs> okay. So, um, well, DU has before me has not had a purely Western Oregon centric person. Usually that person has covered multiple geographies and so they were spread very thin um, across the landscape. One thing about working for DU is that uh, we accomplish quite a bit as far as projects on the ground with very few people. And so in Oregon, for example, there is myself and Chris Colson. We are the regional biologists, but we also have teams of engineers, permitters, drafters. But I'm also the eyes and ears on the ground. I'm the guy that forms relationships with uh, the different entities in the area, whether it's U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the refuges or ODF&W on the wildlife areas or private landowners, um, any of the above. We have a very diverse region. A lot of the areas that I focus in are the Lamb Valley and the coast, but that also includes Savi Island and even some lower Columbia River. So we focus mostly on wetland projects and on the, and not only that, when a lot of people ask what I do, it's water. So yeah. water management, efficiency and conservation. Um, whether that's putting in structures to make sure that wetlands are functioning properly or you know, whether it's making sure that wetlands are, have the right management regime to produce uh, native wetland plants and, and primary waterfowl areas. Um, also, a little bit of policy, a little bit of biology stuff, um, us, you know, getting on podcasts and talking about what I do. I'm pretty passionate about it. Um, also, you know, if I can help educate or outreach, uh, happy to do that as well. And then once in a while, I get some opportunities to do pretty cool things like go up to Alaska um, uh, and look at doing some additional opportunities that, you know, are kind of bucket list for me. Yeah, like slapping red collars on dark-breasted duskies. <laughs> that was that was a bucket lister for me because. Yeah. Uh, working for geese uh, or working on geese for so long in the Willamette Valley, doing lots of caller surveys back in the day, volunteering time. I was going to say like the amount of time that I spent doing my own gas or using my own gas and 
you know, sending in caller information and doing surveys, uh, you know, every little bit pays off uh, towards working towards your occupation or your goals. Yeah. You ever see birds that you, I mean, obviously you probably do considering there's, I mean, there's a bunch of brand, not brand new, but there's a bunch of pretty new looking um, collars hanging around that I've seen that are like the color of Larry's hat, you know, and I can see him. I was like driving into the refuge and I swear to God, I saw a group getting like ready to land, like off in the distance and the light like hit it just perfect. And I was like, Oh, there's a collar, you know, stood out like a sore thumb. So this year was pretty neat for me because going up to the Copper River Delta where Duskies are and um, so U.S. Fish and Wildlife or U.S. Forest Service, Alaska Department of Fish and Game and um, DU, I think we're kind of the primary folks there. And we put on 600 callers every couple years. This was my first year up there, which was a lot of fun. Um, And then coming back down here, having eyes on the ground and finding those birds 1500 miles away from where I collared them in July is pretty darn rewarding. And then on top of that, like another kind of full circle thing was seeing those duskies come to our property to roost that I had potentially or most likely banded in July was really something that was pretty full circle and pretty, it's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. That's always been something I've always wanted to, it's a long, you know, it's not like volunteering at, you know, Fern Ridge or Savvy's or anything like that. But, um, you know, if I could go up and do that, you know, I mean, that would be probably like one of my bucket lists just to see, you know, you see so many of them around our area um, and being able to do that and be a part of it and then come back here and just by chance having snap a picture of one that, you know, I was part of putting a collar on or or something like that would be, be a pretty cool, um, a, a pretty cool full circle um, of events. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and I just, you know, the undertaking it takes to go up there and put those collars on, it's not like you're, it's not small, you know, there's a lot of people involved, airboats, helicopters, uh, and some pretty rough conditions in order to get those collars on um, for conservation and science of these birds. So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's a really cool um, being able to, to be a part of something like that. And, and you know, because this has been going on for a long, a long, long time. time. Yeah. Do you do you think that you've snapped any picks? I mean, can you do you feel do you feel pretty confident that the birds that you have seen that with I mean, obviously, without checking numbers on a foot, but. You know, you've like Tanner said, those ones came in that he saw and they were bright red. I've seen some pictures. I've seen some that are fresh. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, that has to be a pretty high level of confidence that that you were involved in those. Yeah. Um, and not only that, I have some contacts in Alaska that I'll I'll read the codes um, and send them up there, and uh, they can give me the information back on whether those birds are banded in July, they can also give me recite data. Okay. Um, those birds have been seen in previous years. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so like Tanner had that family group, if I'm remembering most of those were colored in 16 and 18. Um, really? Yeah. Those are like, I mean, those are really like one numbers, four, three, six, one's three, nine, two, one's four, one, one. Um, 
Uh, three four zero. Yeah, I mean they're they look almost like brand new. Yep. So nope, those are those are older. Um, I could tell the newer codes this year just because you know I I saw what the codes were. So right. Yeah. Uh, and that really is helpful, but also the styles of colors and things like that. But yeah, pretty pretty awesome experience, and definitely not something I take for granted. Do they ever do like, I, I guess not like cool alpha numerical, but like I know in the past there's been some really cool, um, Kapler ones. Like one was like star. What was it? God, I Brad got it. I, he scouted it, and of course, you know, he snipe. He, he found it, but it was like a really cool one. It was like, it was like asterisk. God, I can't remember it. But do they ever do like cool like combinations of of alphanumeric and non number? They haven't yet, but they they very well they very well might in the future. I'm not sure exactly. I, I have noticed that they're starting to do it on Brant where they're having symbols rather than, than alpha. Yeah. One though that I have not seen on Dusky's before that was done this year was W, mm-hmm. um, which was, which was pretty unique. Uh, so I've only seen one of those so far, but uh, yeah, it is, it's pretty cool. And on top of that, it's really important to have people uh, not only to turn in those codes, uh, because I mean, recite data is really important, especially for Duskies. Um, but if, if people are willing to, to uh, put in those codes, you know, do uh, you recently released a article on my, on the effort up in the, up this summer up coloring Duskies? And there's a contact on there that people can reach out to if they do have caller codes they're willing to uh, send in. And most likely that person can can send back information on where that bird was, uh, hmm. which is a direct connection that that person can have with that bird and, you know, have have a connection that way. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. See, I used to when I lived in Corvallis, you know, I would I would be down at Finley, you know, every couple nights I'd, I'd run down there after work when i got off early and i'd go down and i used to keep a, a notepad in the center console my pickup and i'd write down the caller numbers i found and i'd mark you know when i saw them how many times i saw them and i'd call them in and you know i'd report them but i don't make it over there as often as i used to anymore but i'm like pretty certain that i've seen the same caller i haven't seen it yet this year but i've seen it every year for the last like six years five years out there yeah, there's been some really there's been some really unique things over the years that I've seen as far as as old callers and some of them are you know duskies because they're not huntable birds. Uh, definitely the callers can get older. Uh, I think the one that I saw that was oldest I think was 17, and I think I saw that bird 12 years in a row. And then there was spotted <laughs> one year that was 22. And that was at least 22. Uh, wow. Yeah, which was pretty neat. And uh, it was, you know, banded as an adult. And I want to say like that was 2012. And it was banded in 1990 as an adult. That's an old bird. <laughs> yeah. He'd been around a while. And that, means, that while. means that he lived through... That lived, means he lived through the east side 
the now, east side days that bird, that bird might have lived through the major cackler shift from california into oregon yeah that's crazy yeah i guess one one more question before i let larry take over here for a second um how long have you been working i mean you've obviously worked with ducks unlimited probably in the past but how long have you worked for ducks unlimited is that a fairly so, new thing for you uh, yeah, it is a, a well, relatively new thing. I actually feel like I'm just getting my feet on the ground and, and, uh, uh, with the direction that I, uh, I think do you, I have in as far as an impact you know, on wetlands and, and birds, I've been with DU now for about three and a half years and it's taken me that long to kind of figure out the scope and, and the partnerships and all of the different niches that we, we might be able to have and, and assist, yeah. um, in conservation and restoration in Oregon. Was that kind of a, um, was that kind of your end goal going to school for what you went to school for? Did you want to work for DU or, or, a, or a conservation group like DU? I kind of left it open um, because, but ultimately I wanted to do something with waterfowl. That was my goal. That was always my goal. And so in my previous jobs, it all had waterfowl on the side um or you know it always had elements of waterfowl um i've, I've worked for state um federal and tribal entities and all of them were rewarding all of them got me to where i am today and i'm grateful for each of those experiences um because ultimately i got to my end goal which was working for du and a really neat opportunity to make an impact on an area that's important to me uh, and, and, you know, is a portion of where I grew up. Yeah. Hmm. All right, Larry, you can take it over for a minute here. My, I, I want to hear your golden pipes ring, baby. <laughs> Should we get into some, uh, Q and a. Yeah, but don't get too deep yet. I gotta go make another drink. No, my I, goodness I was thirsty. Right. I was thirsty. Hurry up, sunshine. I will. I will just, just, just keep him interested. All don't right. Let him go anywhere. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, Kelly, we've uh, got a, a, a quite a good number of uh, questions for you. Um, so I'll start off uh, with a couple Tanner questions since he's not here. So he'll have to listen to his own damn podcast. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Right. So uh, how's your season been? Biggest challenges for the year? Oh, um, the season has been a grind. Uh, it has been, hasn't it? It has been. Because we're what? We're probably four or five miles apart from each other. Yeah. Uh, as the crow flies, I was yeah. about right. And what's amazing to me is even comparing and contrasting with folks who are a mile from us, completely mm -hmm. different results on different days. Um, you know, October was weird. Um, a lot of brown, a lot of brown ducks, lots of pintails. Mm-hmm. I think I have a theory on why that might be. Alaska got some really harsh weather, weather really early. Probably pushed some birds down. Um, but it's been a grind. It's been mild. Uh, November, uh, we were supposed to get a bunch of rain and a lot of weather. Most of that hit north of us and put a ton of water on the landscape. I don't think that helped. <laughs> no, I don't think it did either. Here. Um, and then up until recently, we really haven't had any strong weather. And right. the thing I've also noted is that we have had very few prevailing north winds. Mm -hmm. um, we have not had that big cold front, that high pressure. 
Right, exactly. And it seems like, as you know, it's the year of extremes. Uh, you know, for four or five days, we have snow. It all melts off. Now we're in flooding. And then, like, so the birds almost don't have time to settle into a pattern. <laughs> and it's been it's been a grind. There's been good days and bad. Uh, but uh, this has been one of the most challenging seasons I've had ever. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. Uh, all right, uh, another question that we got. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on Mallard Drake curls? <laughs> um, genetically, uh huh. Mal, there are no four curl birds, right? There are four feathers. End of story. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Uh huh. And I'm not saying, I mean, nature is weird. There could be some sort of, of, you know, sure. Colored, but it's a hybrid. Uh, <laughs> one could pop hybrid. out and look like Tanner. I mean, hey, hey, strange hey, things hey. happen. Come on. Let's, let's be nice here. I have feelings too. <laughs> well, you're back with your drink. I haven't had an opportunity to get one yet. So I'm a little jelly. We'll go. <laughs> All right. Let's see here. Uh, how about, how about, mallard feet and the color uh, northern birds no aha uh -huh. has, has nothing to do with it at all no hormones I, my dad lied to me <laughs> there are a hormones. lot of i didn't i didn't know that hormones huh uh my understanding is hormones i know that another theory out another theory out there is that it is cold weather yeah. Um, but no, my understanding is that it is hormones. Hmm. All right. I heard it. So, was, I heard diet also in the past. Um, diet definitely has a big impact on feathers and other things. It very well could have an impact on feet too. I'm not exactly sure. I mean, not only that, you want to talk about spoonies. Have you ever shot an Abert Lake spoonie? No. No, not that I'm aware of. Not unless one made it to summer. Got it. Well, I actually have never confirmed this, but my understanding, because they eat uh, the shrimp, is that a lot of their breast meat is more of a pinkish color than red. Interesting. That'd be kind of cool. I wonder yeah. if they taste like shrimp. I have no idea. I might have to go hunt Avert Lake next year and let you know. Most of the ones <laughs> I've eaten taste like they just came off of the sewage plant ponds. But hey. Hey, hey I'm going to say it once. Don't badmouth my bird my birds man <laughs> if you don't want to if you don't if you want to make fun of them that's fine don't be shooting them and don't be talking bad about them around me all right i'll, I'll work on that okay i don't so, talk about mallards or i got another i got another mallard one for you um you may have seen it on my instagram kelly but the other day uh, i was hunting with a buddy and uh, uh that sucker was full of acorns um on, on the, you know, on the ponds here. Um, and, uh, you know, most of the time they're spitting up corn or different types of feeds. Uh, but this one had, I think, six acorns in it. That's so cool. Mallards, yeah. mallards eat anything, though. They, they, they will, yeah. And I, I'm kind of wondering, obviously, like a hazelnut, I think is a little bit bigger than a lot of these acorns. But mm -hmm. obviously with the influx of... Uh, and Tanner and I've talked at length about this on the podcast of uh, hazelnut orchards popping up and 
the influx of wood ducks and different wood and historically non wood duck areas, right? Yeah. Um, that uh, um, that obviously they're going to find things to eat, whatever they can, right? And absolutely. Uh, so that was one, and I actually told uh, a, a mutual friend of our all of ours today. I said, well, maybe that's why we're running into some stale birds because there's so much protein. The suckers don't ever have to eat. Well, they eat a bunch of freaking acorns and they don't have to come back down into a hot pond for 10 days. Well, there's a, there's a, there could be a lot of truth to that. I mean, realistically, with their metabolism, they may not have to eat as much. Mm -hmm. The weather is warm. And, you know, if they're night feeding, they're probably right. getting as much protein as they need, especially if they have a place to go where they're not going to be bothered bothered yeah. yeah a real quick mallard story that'll gross out some of the audience good uh, october mallards um and on some of our local wildlife areas i've had a couple friends say go jump shoot them uh and one particular friend one day jumped up a couple mallards on um a drying up pool and uh, that both mallards spit up bullfrog tadpoles just by the gobs. Really? Yeah. You can't, so I should you can't go out there me, like man. with my uh, froggy on my bass rod. Yeah, and there you go. Okay, See, right. Mallards are complete creatures of opportunity, and that's why they do so well. Mm -hmm. That doesn't phase me, man. I ate spoonies. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, another thing Tanner and I have talked quite a bit about and something that it would be good to hear your thoughts on is uh, snow geese here in the Mid Valley. Um, you know, I, I know that like when I was a kid, uh, you know, you might see a small group once a year, right? And now it seems like every group of birds that we get down or every other group of birds that we get to come down, it always seems like there's, there's a, a small pack of them. So my, my understanding with uh, Wrangell Island population of snow geese, uh, that's the majority of the snow geese that come down the West Coast. Um, a lot of them filter into Washington and California. Their population is getting to a point where they're starting to um, have wintering birds in places that they've never had wintering birds before. Uh, Eastern Washington, uh, you know, Skagit and British Columbia have a significant population. Savvy Island numbers are coming up. Um, uh, it, I, it may be a matter of time before we see increasing numbers of snows. Yeah. However, those are birds that do require, you know, certain things as well. And it's like, you know, when we have specs going down in California, you always hope that a bunch will stick around. Well, the Wyoming Valley may not have exactly what they need. And yeah. maybe the same, same with the snows. Only time will tell, but sure. You know, it seems like it would be uh, really interesting. Snows, you know, obviously like a lot of grain and that kind of stuff. And with uh, with grass fields and hazelnuts, I don't know that that falls into a common diet of choice. What I, about, I, you know, what about oats? What about what? Oh, oh oats, oats, yeah, grain. Oats. Yeah. I mean, is that something uh, that they would they would? Uh, prefer over you know our annual and fescue and all that yeah you know snow geese are grubbers and so you know like i hear a lot of a lot of the fields that they're in up north or over in and uh, up and up near skagit um i talk with our other regional biologist up there and he's like they really like potato fields 
and other sorts of kind of odd um, things that you wouldn't think snow geese would get into. But then you think about their feeding patterns and they are grubbers. So they actually like turn up the soil and get whatever's in it. And so, and, and also they, their numbers and mass. So do we have enough? And, and again, I, I don't know enough about snow geese. It would be really interesting. I have a couple of people in mind that I like to pick their brain, but it's like, do we have enough big water bodies in the mid Willamette Valley uh, to hold good numbers of snow goose roost? And I'm not sure if that's, I'm not sure if that's. I think, I think we do. I mean, if you really want to, if you really want to think about it, I mean, if you go from, you know, just Salem to Eugene, you know, you go up to Salem, you've got your large quarry up on the side of I-5. That's huge. You've got um, all the different pits around. And I, I guess I'm just talking because I, you know, I drive truck and I see how many birds hang out in these rock quarries. I mean, you've got a number of these pits that are all pretty off the right off the I-5 corridor that are gigantic. Well, I mean, most yeah. of those rock quarries were actually dug for I-5. Right. Yep, exactly. And then you look at, you do have, Things like Fern Ridge and some some and I don't know if so like some of the reservoirs up in the Coast Range or the or the Cascade Range would facilitate populations, but it would be interesting. Yeah, and we'll tell gentlemen, but yeah. at the rate that the population's growing, I want to say it's an over ninety percent success rate for the past two years. It's going to be interesting to watch this. Um, Which that's huge for snow geese. The snow geese. That's huge, though. A 90% success rate from the from the nest, from the hatch. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's really impressive. That's four, yeah. out of, that's four out of five eggs. I mean, yep. wow. All right. Uh, I, I, got, I got one for you really quick. Go do ahead. You, do you think, so I guess the reason I asked the Oats question was uh, last year around Thanksgiving time, um, I was hunting an oat field over kind of by where we all duck hunt at and i had probably 100 to 150 snows out there Mm. and i set up and i was out by myself and i thought you know oh look there's a group of cacklers on the distance you know it was like probably 40 to 60 birds um they came closer and they were all snows and i didn't know what to do because i don't have any snow goose decoys i don't know how to blow a snow goose call you know i don't know if people are aware of this or not but we're not in the midwest um there's not a lot of snows around here anyways i hunted didn't shoot at them uh took a couple buddies out um the next day and i set up some rags and i decoyed them and i saw twice as many i had a group of 30 come into the decoys and which we got one out of which is hanging on my wall now um, but I had 30 come in and then I saw another group of probably 40 to 50 and then another group that was probably 30 to 40. Um, but I only saw that real, um, that, that real congregation of them in that one field. I never saw them in a fescue field. I never saw them in a corn field. I never saw them in a fescue field. I only noticed them out there. Interesting. Um, and again, I wish I knew more about snows, but yeah. you know, that's that's why spending time out in the field and watching these types of things will hopefully help inform us of you know what these birds are doing and how we might even be able to hunt them in the future. Yeah. 
but like if you look at birds that we do know like duskies they're creatures of habit how many i mean how many times can you go to a field every year and see the same birds in that field every year yeah uh is it diet is it habit is it you know preference is it a place where they feel secure Mm -hmm. yeah sure all the above yeah I, i was gonna say like there's the only way you get to experience it is watch and watch and watch and see if you can figure out some sort of pattern yeah so do you think you know i like when i goose on i tend to try to shoot big geese just because i've just always had a thing for shooting hawkers um i've noticed in the past probably like five years that the duskies are beginning to take on a lot more of the honker characteristics and i'm starting to see what i would like to think are the weskies from the early 2000s that we were putting the white collars on do you think that they're still interbreeding with those i mean do you think that there's i mean you've been up to the copper river delta do you ever see a, a straggler pair of honkers or anything up there i mean you know Again, it's like, I wish I knew more, but I would say as far as Wuskies go, very few of those marked birds have have been sighted in the mid Willamette Valley, not saying it's not possible, because it is possible. Anything is possible. Geese have wings. Um, and things change over time. So can there be interbreeding? Probably. Uh, but look at how much variation there is in cacklers too. Mm-hmm coloration all of those types of things um you know i'm not sure exactly you know were there different variations of duskies when i was up there sure they in general they had the traits and the definitions for what we call them down here which is you know fiber darker on the color chart and you know between 40 and 50 millimeter coleman yeah um uh one thing that is interesting though and i had multiple people call it out when i got back here uh is a lot of permit zone hunters were like man those birds look like um, uv radiation there <laughs> you know it's uh, during the summer all of their feathers molt and the way those birds look up there versus down here is different hmm. that's that's pretty cool I just about, didn't know. How, how about the uh swannies what are your thoughts on uh i I do feel that we I've seen a, a lot of swans this year, uh, maybe even more than the last couple of years, but uh, I don't know any numbers, but it does seem like, you know, I think is it Nevada that has a permit, right? My understanding is both Nevada and Utah have hunts and um, yeah, there's a lot of swans. There's a lot of swans this year, um, just observation wise, again, yeah. I don't have numbers, but um, and honestly, that kind of makes hunting fun. If you're hunting water body, you can pretty much call those birds in with your mouth. Right. You got a Rick Flair. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, That's what I've always said. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they add an element to the hunt too, which is fun. Um, uh, and pretty unique to see those. And all that, I don't know if you've seen them, but there seems to be um, uh, a few more trumpeters around. Yeah. Uh, which is which has been interesting because mm-hmm. it was like you know my dad and grandpa told me man if you hear a trumpeter that's something really special 
and now I hear it multiple times a year when we're hunting. Right. Hmm. Which is which is pretty pretty neat opportunity. We had a collared swan around too here for a little bit. I don't know. Did you ever see that one? It's been it's been a while since they collared those. Um, I saw one years ago um, doing some collar surveys, and then I had one actually come in and land um, in our duck spread, and it was uh, it was a bird. I ended up pulling the coat off it, and uh, uh, it was a thirteen year old swan from uh, Yukon Kuskokwim Delta, which is pretty neat. Hmm. Yeah, there's one around uh, a couple weeks ago. It was a blue. Was it was like a dark blue uh, yep. that color on it? Yep. So yeah, those birds, those birds are uh, are pretty neat. Uh, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see with them uh, if there's going to be an increase in them. Uh, uh, you know, and what what maybe caused them to stay here longer this year. Mm-hmm. Or if it's just because they did, man, they just sunk in and just planted their giant ass feet in the ground. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, it was pretty neat, you know, when you, when you can go and, and, you know, visit, you know, public land in the area and see a thousand swans in, in one area, that's pretty neat opportunity. Yeah. So real, real quick, before we dive into the, um, Q&A section here. I have one more question for you. Are you a, a morning, are you a morning shoot person or are you an afternoon delight guy? So that's actually really interesting that you said that because I am any other year, but this year afternoon delight, but this year has been so wacky week to week it feels like morning or evening could be better but it's like this year has been a crapshoot and there's no pattern so in past years i feel like you know your average duck hunter goes out from daylight to 10 a.m especially if they're weekend warriors and they want to get home for football by noon and at maybe a nap uh prior uh that's about the time i like to head out uh and because, uh, you know, I like to watch football, but uh, I would much rather be in the duck line. Yeah. I know in, in, a, in a couple spots that I hunt that the afternoon's always nice because I can actually get the birds to put their feet down and not be concerned about somebody else blowing them out of my hole. Yeah, and that's, that's absolutely true. And as you guys know. <laughs> or Tanner's hole. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, and you about that, lost me there, Squidward. I guess, the, I guess the older I get, the crankier I get about, you know, what is a quality hunt? And right. like, I don't want to hear other shotguns going off or, you know, flaring my birds when I almost have freaking, I would much rather decoy. I would much rather decoy three birds and, uh, you know, kill them dead than frustratingly get three birds mm-hmm. in, during the morning shoot. So, yeah. Uh, All right. Well, let's go ahead and dive into some uh, some Q and A's here. So first first question we've got here is what exactly is a dusky goose? Uh, the guy that asked this is from Wyoming, so he's not super familiar with it. Honestly, that's a great question and something that we probably should have covered earlier. Um, but a dusky goose is one of um, it is a subspecies of goose that 
that winners and has always historically wintered in the Willamette Valley and the lower Columbia River, as well as the Oregon coast. Um, and it nests in the Copper River Delta. And it has a historically low population where that was expedited because of an earthquake that happened on the Copper River Delta in 1964. And that raised the delta and the nesting grounds dusky um, anywhere, I believe, between 10 and 20 feet. And when I went up to call her this year, I was fortunate enough to see the impact that that earthquake had and what they're trying to do to assist dusky nesting habitat. Um, but a dusky is defined up there by a bird that is on the Copper River Delta. And it is defined down here by a medium-sized goose with a Coleman of 40 to 50 millimeters and a five or darker on the Munsell soil color chart. And I believe its current population is around 13,000 birds. And now is that up from the past or is that, or I guess not the past, sorry. Is that up in the last like say five years or so, or is that about average? You know, if you really look at kind of duskies over the past uh, 10 to 20 years, it's a lot of up and down but relatively stable. And so it's pretty much stayed between 10 and 15,000 for quite a few years. Um, and I think it might've dipped once below 10,000, but um, yeah, 13,000 is kind of about where it's hanging. Um, somebody asked, do you guys ever need volunteers for any of your projects um, in the future? If so, how does one person apply for that? Yeah. No need to apply. Um, so this last spring, we had an opportunity for folks to come out and um, uh, plant native plants at a new area on Fern Ridge Wildlife Area. And so they were planting essentially duck food, um, also providing blind cover um, on a new walking area. And so there are opportunities like that that come up from time to time. Uh, and all that you really, the easiest way to find out about it is to join DU chapter um, or potentially join a mailing list. Um, the person that you would want to talk to in Oregon is John Stanfield, and he will ensure you're put on a list uh, for potential volunteer opportunities. And if you are interested in um, <clears throat> joining a chapter, just uh, send us a direct message and I'll um, give you the contact that you need. I don't really feel like broadcasting that on um a podcast but yeah if you if you are interested in it um message us and we will get you guys um set up with somebody who can who can get you to a chapter near you uh what are your what are your biggest hopes for ducks and geese um in the coming years you know do you want to see them uh move in different locations you want to see them obviously grow you know what are you kind of what are you hoping for Great. That's a great overarching question. And it's like a lot of my work is so specific. I, I honestly don't think about that, that big picture question very often. So I, that's a good one. Um, what I hope to see is I would like to see duskies increase if possible. And there's a lot of research and science going into that, that will hopefully help their population. Um, we will, you know, yet to be determined. There's a lot of factors that we have no control over, like Mother Nature, 
that are going to play a role in this stuff too. Um, drought, um, storms, uh, extremes, extremes cold, extremes hot, uh, that are going to play a role in, in how ducks and geese do in the future. The most important thing for ducks and geese is habitat. They have to get all of their food sources, protein, and body condition ready for breeding every year. And uh, the most at-risk areas for waterfowl are in the winter areas. And so if we don't have habitat for them down here, they're going to have a harder time succeeding up north in their breeding. And so my hope, I guess this is more of kind of almost a personal goal, is that we can continue to conserve, restore, expand, and manage wetlands in the region um, to function at their highest potential for waterfowl. Sounds a lot like my goals. What, what is your, do you have a favorite species you like to hunt? Is it just waterfowl in general? Good question. And I think every year it kind of changes. Uh, ever since I was little though, bull sprig has been something that I've always, I've always been passionate about. Like a bull sprig was something that was pretty special. Um, and I think it's the way they decoy, the way they come in, the way they frustrate me, uh, the way that they learn so quickly. But man, you cannot ask for a better flyer as far as like graceful and sleek. And like when those drakes are uh, doing their aerial displays, chasing hens, uh, that's like the ultimate. When I picture that, I picture, I picture a, a big bull, bull penny kind of having the monocle, you know, like Mr. Peanut and smoking one of those long cigar, the cigarillos, you know. And then <laughs> some I, scotch. Yeah, with like a nice cup of scotch. And then I think of uh, old Mr. Spoonie who's just showing up to the bar about a half hour late with a ripped open denim jacket on, mullet flaring, chewing, drinking whiskey from the bottle. I'm going to go with PBR or Keystone. You don't think it's a whiskey bird? <laughs> no. <laughs> I, do. I can't do it. I can't do it. Can't. What's, a, what's a whiskey bird then? A whiskey bird would yeah. probably be, I'm, I'm going to do a mallard's or a whiskey That's bird. That's so pathetic. I knew you were going to say that. Mm -hmm. I was thinking like a gadwall, you know, he's like kind of, he's like that. He's, if you get him at the right time, he's, he's got that good look. But if you get him at the wrong time, it's just another, another guy, another bird. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Um, what kind of hatch typically follows drought years like we've been seeing? So good questions. And again, I, I, you know, a lot of this stuff I actually learn because this doesn't happen down here. This happens up North. So I actually, I actually learn or talk to folks and try to get my information on, on, you know, what does the future look like? And man, drought years are tough. And this was, this last one was a bad one. Um, uh, at least for the prairie birds. Um, I guess it depends on if it's going to be another drought year or if things, you know, there was a couple years ago where we had a really bad flood year followed by a drought year, followed by a good year, followed by a drought year. So it's like, absolutely, yeah. we're not really going to know until the following year. But the, what, the only way that ducks kind of avoid that 
is to go find areas where they can breed successfully. And my understanding is that a lot of birds left the prairies this year and went up to the Boreal forest and tried nesting up there. Hmm. Um, so hopefully they can be adaptive and, and find some niches where they can succeed, but that's my understanding. Now, do those birds, when they go to the Boreal forest, do they, that's still in, that still puts them in that, um, central flyway area, correct? Central flyway, Mississippi flyway. Boreal, Boreal extends all across, uh, all across basically Northern Canada. Oh, okay. Okay. See, I thought it was just from, I thought it was more, um, Northeastern. It's like a strip. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Pretty much what it is, is you have prairies. And then boreal arctic hmm. arctic tundra have you ever heard of birds off topic have you ever heard of birds um going switching flyways i guess as drastically as from the mississippi flyway to the pacific flyway yes really? uh, and that's part of the pintail problem is that a lot we get plenty of birds from uh other flyways that come down the pacific flyway so if the pacific gets a significant portion of pintails all across the nation and you know so yeah we see a lot of pintails here but a lot of pintails there and those are struggling where our pintails that come a lot of them come from alaska and other areas are 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 not quite as threatened or uh impacted as from canada i had a friend of a friend shot a banded pintail from louisiana uh week and a half ago and i didn't believe it pretty crazy i was like no i doubt it man i don't think that's even possible uh there was there was a guy i know um that hunts uh that hunts south of us and quite a ways and he got a pintail from quebec what that's crazy yeah mine was just from alberta yeah man yeah that's crazy that they'll just they'll switch the flyway like that yeah, I actually know a guy who recently, or uh, not recently, but uh, uh, in the last couple of years, he shot a banded ringneck from North Carolina. <laughs> I've been on that flight. It sucks. <laughs> <laughs> You're like Mr. Traveler over there. Uh, right? Uh, here's a pintail question for you. Uh, <laughs> why are pintail limits not determined by counting each flyway? And I think you just touched on it there um, since – they're such a sporadic again super complicated um definitely invite folks to go look up uh some articles online that really do a good job of spelling out what what all of the things that they have to consider for pintail management and pintail populations uh the pintail puzzle is a d article that was done by uh, mark petrie out of our office that was a great article and um, I think even Delta has an article as well, um, kind of explaining the the issues uh, facing kind of pintail management. So, yeah, uh, do you have a bucket list bird? I mean, obviously everybody's got a bucket list bird, but do you have one that's like number one on your hit list? No, kind of the older I get, I I like for me, like I I don't have that bucket list bird that I want. I, I guess an ember goose would be pretty cool if I drew a permit. Yeah. Uh, 
Um, but that requires a lot of money to go for one bird. <laughs> it's but, yeah. but for me, that's a personal connection to a bird that I got to see um, doing a lot of grad study work up in Alaska. Uh, and they are just so unique, unlike anything down here, unlike anything you've seen. It's they're really unique, awesome birds. Yeah. Larry, do you have a bucket list bird? Drake Spoonie. You're such a dick. <laughs> <laughs> mine's a mine's a nene goose. They're like all banded. Nene. Man, you you want to talk about a population that's never gonna be huntable. Oh, I know. I always see people that like they go to like Hawaii, you know, on vacation or something, and they like go to their hotel and they like post a picture on Northwest or like band hunters, like, what kind of goose is this? And they're like, it's a nanny goose. Like, I'm gonna catch it. And they're like, well, you're gonna catch a felony too. <laughs> so and I actually don't know if this is true, but my understanding that one of the closest and again, I would have to fact check this, but my understanding is one of the um closest relatives of the nene goose is the dusky really interesting that's a weird that's a weird connection to make it's such a different i'm looking i'm trying to get a picture of it really quick well that's where you get like into genetics and things like that right yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's cool like those nene geese are like they're beautiful though really pretty yeah, yeah. Um, you ever shot a bird that you have personally banded? Maybe. I I don't actually know if I banded it or if somebody next to me banded it. Um, Is that because it all goes under the, um, like the lead biologist? Different. Yeah. It's under, under a certain banding permit. Um, but you know, like the only way I could tell this summer if I, if I, you know, 100% banded a dusky is I have a couple pictures where like the one you posted where I have a dusky in my hand. Well, mm-hmm. Bird. Yeah. I can 100% <laughs> right. that bird. Was that, but, that what uh, year? Was that this year? Yeah, that was this year. Yeah, I'll be on the lookout for that collar code. I'm going to try to snap a picture of it for you. Yeah, there you, you go. Can, you can blow it up and put it on your wall. Yeah. And then Tanner will buy it from you. That's actually kind of <laughs> one of my goals. So that's such a yeah, Tanner move too, to like take the picture <laughs> and then like send it to Kelly. Kelly prints it out, puts it on a blown up in a nice frame, shows up at a DU banquet, dumb, dumb me buys it. I could have just done it myself. It, it really wouldn't surprise me at this point. Uh, What's the most odd bird you've banded? Anything like really out of the ordinary? I will say most odd bird I banded, it was an almost, uh, we were doing some rocket netting and there was a pintail mallard in the mix <laughs> and the net missed it. Oh, yeah. Oh. Did you see that one that got posted on the blind chatter page, uh, probably a couple weeks ago? Maybe I might it, have. Yeah. It was a mallard widgeon hybrid. Oh, yeah. I have never seen one of those before. And it was the coolest looking bird. And the part that stung the most was that it was shot local. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like the kid and I, we were um, we were messaging back and forth and I was talking to him and stuff. And he was we were kind of talking about places we hunted and he started describing a couple places. And I was like, you know, (laughs) I grew up hunting that. He's like, no way. And I'm like, now I'm really butthurt that you shot this. (laughs) 
All right. So now that you say it, I will say a pintail mallard hybrid. I do have a score to settle. I had I had a bird that I was I was trying to get for a couple years actually, and I could never get on him. So it was close multiple times, but never could never get him. Do you remember a couple of years ago? Um, I want to say it was like two years ago. We had a Brant mixed in at Finley. Oh, they're they're there more often than you think. So. What happens if what happens if it comes in with a group of cacklers and it becomes part of the collateral damage of a you know a chaotic uh, group of cacklers coming in, you know? Sometimes you know you get a, a couple twofers and stuff, but what happens if that you know happens out of season inland where you aren't even targeting that bird? Take it. Take it. Take it. Good to know. I've never been in the position. You, know, you I failed about on your identification, son. Yeah. Yeah. You did not <laughs> identify your target properly. Yeah. I talked to my brother a little bit. And um, I guess back in the day, he had a field that he was hunting in Millersburg um, that they had one come in and, and land in the decoys. And they were like, what the hell is like, what is this? You know, and they're like, oh, it's a brand. I've had him in the decoys a couple times outside of season, and it is painful. It is painful, but uh, yeah, it, you know, I, it could easily happen. They're the same size and, you know, as much rain as we get on a, on a, on a dark day, but uh, yeah, at the, at the end of the day, you're, you're not legal. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Uh, you must shoot it in that November window. Oh yeah. Yeah. I went down um, a couple years ago and hunted in one of the bays and, I was in a layout boat and I had these birds flying at me and I'm like trying to figure out what they are. You know, I'm like, Hey, well, they're not scoters. I'm like they're not Canada's. I'm like, they're definitely not Buffalo heads. And they kept coming and kept coming. And they were like 30 yards out. And I'm like, I still don't know what I'm looking at, you know? And they came over the top and I'm like, Oh, those are brand. You know, I've never seen one out like <laughs> when I'm actually like where they should be at, you know, I've never seen one, but, and then I was like, I wonder if I could, I wonder how I could get on some of these. And I did a little research and decided that's uh, probably not for me right now, but that's probably my, probably one of my bucket list birds is, is shooting a nice, a nice brand. You know, there's something that's so simple about them, but it's like elegant at the same time, you know, totally agree. Yeah. Brands are, brands are pretty cool. Uh, let's wrap this up with this. Actually, we won't wrap it up with this. This will just be another one. Uh, if you wanted to and you could what would you change about the Oregon season limit or permits permit zone uh good questions and I think what it comes down to is what does the individual hunter want for seasons and bag limits and um you know eric touched on some pretty good things last week about permits and goose hunting on and three days a week versus the now seven days a week and how that has impacted or made goose hunting more challenging um if i could go back to the old days of days a week that would be something that i would love to see yep and 
Um, you know, over the years, we've seen we've seen geese shift and adapt to hunting pressure, making them a lot harder to hunt. And then you have taverners uh, that just aren't as present in the valley as much anymore, um, observationally. Uh, where did they go? Was it hunting pressure? I don't know. But man, I miss tabs. There, they were my favorite to hunt. And um, so, you know, but everything is also an evolution. So it, it could have been changes that were outside of that 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 impacted taverners moving. But man, if I could go back to three day a week hunting where you could pattern geese, find them in a the field, get permission, set up on them, and you know, have a quality hunt. That's yeah. Cool. yeah. That's one of my biggest pet peeves right now is like you know, I don't get out to scout as much as I, you know, would like to. Um, but when I do find a field, it'd be nice to know that if, if I found it on Wednesday night and I locked it down for Saturday, <clears throat> it'd be great to know that, um, Larry, Moe and Curly aren't going to go in on Thursday and Friday and blow it up before <laughs> I have the permission for Saturday, you know? Yeah. I would go back to the three days. I'd go back to like a Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday, but I wouldn't want to give up the four bird that we have now because I was around during the two bird and that sucked. I mean, that was, that was hard because when you find a good field, you don't want to blow it up for two birds or four birds. You know, you were having to pull together eight guys, nine guys to have, you know, anything really worth hunting, you know, but you know, Man, I mean, we live in a challenging area and it's always going to be, um, you know, between Duskies or, or, you know, Cacklers are a management priority in the Pacific Flyway. And uh, they're always going to be, you know, um, looked at for making sure, you know, all geese are going to be looked at for making sure their management levels and, and those birds are succeeding. So, um, so yeah, but it, will change hunters preferences on what they want to see for hunting and that's why i said it's so much based off of what each individual hunter wants because what i want is probably not what the majority wants and um so you know it's interesting yeah so last question we'll keep it on the on the the duskies um what what does a manageable dusky population look like to a biologist oh this is easy look at the management plan uh, but you know how uh, big of words are in that management plan that i probably have to sound <laughs> out or pull out a dictionary to figure out what the hell i'm actually reading um you know that that's a good question and you know i think as far as what is a manageable population it's not what's a manageable population it's what's a sustainable population um, because there could be something that all of a sudden causes them to go over the edge. And that is going to impact our hunting here in the Pacific Flyway. And um, so we need to do everything that we can to, to avoid that from happening. Whether it's, you know, hunters kind of, you know, uh, you know, making sure that they're identifying their targets to, you know, supporting causes like dusk concentration and, and things up in Alaska where we're trying to learn more about them. We're trying to learn more about their breeding grounds. You know, when I went up there this year, it was interesting in reading so many documents about duskies, what was in my head on what the Delta looked like and 
the work that's going on up there, man, the work that those guys are doing up there is, is, is extreme as far as the amount of effort, the nest plot islands, figuring out dusky stuff, the predation stuff. Um, so hats off to those guys. And a lot of people ask, you know, why do people do that? Because it is, it is the goal of, you know, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, U.S. Forest Service, or Ducks Unlimited to make sure that there are sustainable populations for future generations to enjoy. You know, I want my 20-month-old daughter to see Dusky's decoying, and we can sit and watch them and not shoot them, and she's going to ask why, and then I can tell her about it. Um, you know, that's also, I don't think there's any other place, you know, besides Washington and Oregon where you do that in North America. So we have a pretty, actually, even though a lot of people think it's a pain, I kind of like it. It's a unique opportunity that a lot of people don't get to sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Yeah, yeah I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll agree. I mean, it is, it definitely, it's not a pain as much as it is just kind of like a, like a heartbreak, you know? For me, it was a pain when I it, it was a pain when I was young and learning. Um, yeah, I can. See you know, that. I, I'm not saying it was a bad pain or anything like that, but it it was. Th there was a lot of birds that I missed at a young age when you know, uh, and you know, 20, 25 years ago, where it was identifying, you know, and you'd get some tabs that would come over and. <laughs> I would be super scared because there was a check-in station and all these different things. And, you know, just I, by default, I wanted to pass, right? If, if, if in question, I would pass on the birds and there was a, in reflection, there was many times that I should have pulled the trigger. Right. And you don't, you know, so that learning experience that took me a, a good, probably two to five years to identify there was a lot of let us a lot of setup time for a lot of birds that flew off right Yo, for me personally oh absolutely and absolutely i mean it was uh, it was a you know and like realistically if you didn't have a mentor you yeah. know that could that could help you like it was impossible that was me that was and, that, Unless if they were big. I mean, that was the thing. My dad always said, if they're big, they're white breast, you're good to go. Just shoot. But everything else had kind of a darker breast to them. Right. Sure. So that was, that was, uh, that was, you know, the mentor side of it and growing up in Eastern Oregon, where it was mostly honkers. Right. It was, yeah. that was what, as a, my dad and I hunted and then moving here to the Valley, it was a little bit different scenario. And he was just like, well, don't, you know, if they're big and they're white or light, you shoot. Um, but yeah. And here, here was also kind of the good part about the permit zone. How many people just didn't do it? Right. Mm -hmm. Their overall goose hunting pressure in the Willamette Valley would have been much more had it just been all Canada geese were legal or mm -hmm. cackling geese were legal. And I just knew a lot of people that didn't even want to deal with it. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of times where we'd go out and, um, just based on where we were hunting at, it was like, wasn't worth the drive to a check station to check in, you know, say we had a, you know, a pair come in or something. It's like, it's not really worth the drive to go over there to check mm -hmm. two honkers in to drive, you know, you know, we're driving a half hour out of our way just to a check station. Mm -hmm. So 
I think that I think yeah I think you're right I mean I think that played into a lot of people's um the way that they hunted back then I think they just said I'm not even gonna hunt geese and now I think that the check stations are gone and it's all based on the honor system quote-unquote and OSP you know coming out and checking and and the sheriff's department stuff um I think you see a lot more goose hunters out now than you did even four or five years ago gosh and there's times like i would say that's true in certain areas but i feel like in other areas it's like the cacklers are starting to get harder to hunt to the point where i don't feel like a lot of people are doing that anymore good i hope they keep stopping yeah well i think that transition kind of happened when we went from three to seven days that you know i i think that now the birds are moving around a little bit more it's a little bit more difficult uh you know unless if you've got you know fortunately for me like the other day tanner when we were talking earlier that was private land that 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 i knew nobody else was going to hunt because it's family land and i went out there and shot a bunch of cacklers right yeah yeah Yeah. it's definitely you know i mean there's guys around that'll you know, they'll lock out a field. I've had to deal with it in the past where, um, you know, all you got to do is text the owner and tell me you want to hunt it. I want to hunt it Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and there's no questions asked. And he's like, okay, sounds good. You know, and then I come in on Wednesday and I see a bunch of birds out there and I'm like, hey, I want to hunt this on Saturday. And he's like, oh, you can't, it's taken. I'm like, okay. And then I go out there every day and there's still birds out there. Nobody's hunted it yet. And then I go out there on Saturday morning at eight o'clock and there's nobody set up out there. And it's like, Oh, so you're just locking it down so nobody can hunt it. I got it. Sounds good. Cool. Mm-hmm. Oh. The shenanigans. Kelly, did you see that video I posted the other day of me just being a really, um, really bad hunter? Uh, was it you missing cacklers at like five? Yeah, it was. Okay. Yeah. I need, I need a little explanation on these because I'm dumbfounded. I've never had birds do that before. I've never had cacklers do that before. So these cacklers, the first group was a three pack came in like duskies did. That's why I didn't pull up on them in the beginning, but you know, they came in probably 15, 20 yards off the ground, low, slow, dark. And I was like, all right, whatever, you know, you can land and I'll, you know, check for a collar and I'll push you out. And they landed and they hit, as soon as their feet hit the ground, they sat down and they were all cacklers. And so I got up and grabbed my gun, yelled at him, nothing. Got up. Did they fly, did they fly off okay? Yeah, Eventually. for the most part. <laughs> yeah, okay. for the most part. I mean, it was just one, the only thing, one of them had kind of a bum leg, I think. It kind of was a little wobbly. I was going to say, man, it doesn't take much for a bird to kind of lose their, lose their natural instinct if they've got an injury or are sick. So they can lose that almost not survival instinct, but that fight or flight where they lose that sense of urgency to get out of a certain situation. If you have a fever, are you going to go for a two mile run? I don't go for two mile runs when I don't have a fever. (laughs) Have you seen me? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Are you going to go on a hundred yard sprint if you have a fever? Like I think, you know, and I don't know if that's a fair comparison, but man, if, if, uh, if an animal is not, feeling well they can definitely lose some of that instinct whether you know being a cripple or you know eating something eating something that they shouldn't have um you know uh 
I can't remember what the exact thing is, but cacklers do get uh, – it has to do with moldy corn, and it doesn't – Oh, does, yeah, I have heard that. Yeah, and uh, for whatever reason, it kind of only impacts cacklers. So, you know, a bird flying into the spread and doing that, especially if they just sit down immediately and aren't even feeding, that's a pretty good indication that that bird is not there. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, because then, like, probably an hour later, I had a group of four, again, cacklers, small groups. I don't know what was with it, but, you know, in this place I was hunting in, in particular, I'd never really decoyed cacklers in. And they came in from behind me from the refuge, and they didn't even make a pass, and they just sat down quiet as a mouse. The only reason I noticed was because I looked up from my phone and saw wings. And there was already there was already three in the decoys, and one was landing. So I was like, I should probably – probably get ready but and those birds were fine or those birds were not uh, only one of them got away okay but the other, the other three aren't they're all right they're not doing mm. too good right now okay got <laughs> it but those first two those first two seemed off to you yeah it was just it was just a weird was, like i described the layer it was almost like they they'd experienced like a very traumatic um like injury and they'd like lost that sense of like survival yep. where they just flew in sat down and they just had no instinct of like hey this guy's walking at me i should probably you know get up i mean like we're talking about birds that if you get out of your car and you shut your door too hard they're out you know yeah, yeah. no that's that i would say that's that's valid my guess is those were sick birds in one way or another yeah hmm well, I don't have any more questions. I got everything off my chest I needed to. Larry? I do for now. I think we need to pull Kelly back in at a later date and have some new things for him. Re reassess after uh, third period? Yeah, that's a good idea. Or fourth, third period, not fourth period. Yeah. But yeah. Well, Kelly, I, I appreciate you coming on. You know, you've been able to shed some light on um, some questions that I've had since I was – 10 um you know it's, it's shocking to me to learn that the brighter the feet doesn't mean it's a northern bird um you know, <laughs> spoonies in particular are still um by all means the greatest bird to ever grace the earth um i'm gonna be getting a spoonie tattoo um in the coming months it's been a real treat being able to talk to you um do you want to go ahead and what's your uh, instagram for your um photography page uh at wildspiritresources.com or at wild spirit resources you have a website too i do not have a website you just threw the dot com in for that's that's yeah for fun okay <laughs> <laughs> i was like i didn't know you had a website <laughs> nope so, well we really appreciate you coming on and um you know we'll definitely Thank have you to both. get you back Thank on you here after the season wraps up and uh we're getting ready for our off-season duties that sounds awesome and i can't wait to see wow. you grinning with a prime spoonie in the next days it's, it's just a matter of time i hope so. it really is yeah it really I is hope so the place i'm hunting on saturday has a bunch of widgeon in it and some spoonies i heard from my my buddy who's scouting for me so fingers crossed my wife or i can shoot a nice stud well i highly rec i highly recommend a close proximity to sewer ponds to what a sewer pond oh. yes that's yeah. that's where you gotta go yeah, really. You know, you know what? You guys say what you want. <laughs> say what you want. Laugh Just providing facts over here, buddy. 
I hope I shoot one. I hope I shoot a banded spoonie. I, I would, hope you do too. I would hang it up probably for the next year if I shot a banded spoonie. As you should. As I will. I they would are be out proud. there. Yeah. Oh. All right, Kelly. Well, thanks for joining right. us. Thank you. All right, man. Take care. Yep. Bye.